kind. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, let's just get it out of the way. My real name is Tim Allen. Not a fake name. My parents were, actually, you know, <clears throat> I get, I'm kind of fond of telling this, but my parents were going to name me Stephen. And my dad was ultimately, had the thought, he's like, wait a minute, there's a famous comedian named Steve Allen. We shouldn't do that to our son. The kids might make fun of him. So they named me Timothy, meaning honoring God, and the rest is, you know, what's in a name, right? But uh, yeah, I'm grateful to be among us, as Pastor Tim mentioned. That's been really confusing, by the way, this morning. Every time I hear Pastor Tim, I want to like answer. But uh, the Tims are slowly taking over our city network. FCA pastors here in the area, and so eventually it'll just be all Pastor Tims, I think, at some point. But anyway, it's good to be with you. I bring greetings from Evanston Bible Fellowship up north. It's good, like I said, good to be with you. I wish the rest of my family could make it as well, but uh, you'll hear a little bit more about them. But I'm married to Danielle. We've got three kiddos. Izzy is five, Sam is four, and Silas is nine months. And, uh, they, are, they are a delight to us. Um, they definitely keep things interesting around the Allen household. And we have been in called Jesus the Servant King, looking at the gospel according to Mark. And so this is actually a message that I preached last week there. I'm not bringing like the, you know, the best message in my back pocket. Somebody tweeted this because like, guest preachers, one of the best things you can do is stink. <laughs> that way the pastor that's there looks even better. So anyway, I know that's terrible, right? I shouldn't say that. But anyway, this is just a message that uh, is, was on my heart and something that I got to preach last week at EBF. Uh, and then this week will be in the, in the following text as well. But if you wouldn't mind uh, flipping to Mark 10, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. But uh, before we do that, I'd love to lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the one who gathers us. You are the one who is near. We pray that you would use your word today to transform us from the inside out. Take your word, plant it deep within us. Form and fashion us more in the likeness of Christ. And Father, as we heard earlier, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name that we pray. Let the little children come. That seems a little had the little children go, but that aside, let the little ch children come. This is a very familiar saying within Christianity. So ingrained in us at how revolutionary those words really are and how revolutionary they would have sounded to someone in the first century. Children were, were viewed at the as powerless. One could literally discard children by exposing unwanted infants at the time of birth. There's an infamous letter written in 1 BC by a poor laborer to his pregnant wife in Alexandria with the instructions to keep the child if it's a boy, but to discard the child if it's a girl. Christians seeking to live out the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God became known as those who would rescue exposed children. 
envelop them into this new covenant community, raise them as their own. Passages like the one found here in Mark 10 lie at the heart of how Christians are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who taught us what it means to serve the marginalized, to serve the powerless, including children. What we will see is that Jesus elevates children and holds them up as an example of how everyone is to receive the kingdom of God with simple, childlike faith, and then to live out the revolutionary values of the kingdom. Mark 10 falls in the central section in Mark's gospel, running from Mark 8.22 to 10.52, so kind of right there in the middle where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That's a key word throughout this section. This, it's built around three predictions of his coming suffering and death. That also includes teaching on genuine discipleship and the revolutionary values of the kingdom. It also falls in a section where it shows the disciples increasing blindness to some of the spiritual realities that we'll talk about. Their confusion and misunderstanding especially after each of the passion predictions take place. Jesus is revealing a new Exodus way spoken by the prophets that will become the way of the new Exodus, the way of the cross, the way of suffering through which Jesus will redeem his people and the way his true disciples must follow. The second passion prediction happens in chapter 9, verse 30. Should I put the pack on the... How's that? We'll see how that goes. Uh, begins in chapter 9, verse 30. And is when Jesus speaks of his coming suffering and death, it is met with misunderstanding. The disciples end up haggling over who is going to be the greatest in the new kingdom. And Jesus responds, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant. And so to drive his point home, if my family was here, maybe I would do this. I got to do this last week, but scoop up my nine-month-old in my arms, because that's what Jesus does. He picks up a little child, this living parable in the midst of their haggling over who is greatest, and says, you don't get it. This is it. Scoops up a little child and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That is a key theme that he comes back to that here in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Before that, he goes on to challenge the way that they engage in gatekeeping or exclusivism. They, they complain to Jesus about this man who is casting out demons in his name, says, he's not one of us. And again, Jesus reminds them that they don't get it. He challenges their exclusivism, as well as their causing little ones, not only themselves, but others, to stumble. There in the rest of the chapter, chapter 9. Well, then he moves south to the region of Perea, which, if you know a little bit about that region, that is where Herod Antipas is the ruler, where John the Baptist did the bulk of his ministry, and so where this question, this trap that is set for him by the Pharisees is, has to do with divorce, hoping that he will either 
meet the same fate, either get on the bad side of the crowds who held up John the Baptist, or meet the same fate as John himself was beheaded for challenging Herod Antipas and his famously public divorce. But what we see in that passage is how Jesus appeals to the created order to show the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God according to marriage. And that is that marriage ethics in the kingdom must be based not on concessions to human failure, like what he presents in uh, Exodus and what Moses wrote, but instead on God's design for marriage since creation. One man and one woman united as one flesh as long as they live. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Not only must wives, should wives be cherished and respected, but children are to be as well. Children who often find themselves as collateral damage in the relationships that can, marriage relationships that can unravel. And so in Mark 10, 13, we see Jesus return to this theme of little ones that had been brewing since he scooped one up in his arms. And even as he talked about not causing little ones to stumble, he gives this amazingly tender story that shows his loving concern for little children. And really what they reveal about how all of us are called to approach the kingdom of God. So in our time this morning, what I'd love to do is explore the story here in Mark 10, 13 to 16, arrive at the bottom line of this passage, and consider how it intersects with our lives, the where the rubber meets the road. What we'll see in the story is first common attitudes toward children, then how Jesus elevates children, and finally how Jesus shows compassion toward children. So first, common attitudes toward children. Look at verse 13. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. You know, the word people here can certainly include parents, but it actually has a broader meaning. It could include older kids, friends, other relatives that were part, that were involved in bringing children to Jesus for his blessing. Perhaps for healing, even. The parallel account in Luke 18 reveals that they were also bringing babies to Jesus. I love that picture. Children, yes, were loved, but they were considered socially powerless. You look at some of the research about just the high infant mortality rate among many children dying early in life around this time. It is possible that some brought children to Jesus for his healing, but it's also, we see this picture even later in the passage of how they hoped to get a blessing from him. Much like in the Old Testament, when, the, when we see figures placing their hands on children and blessing them, especially at the end of their lives. Stunningly, we're told, though, that the disciples rebuked them. Now, we read that and we think, what in the world could cause them to do something like that? Well, they had just obstructed this man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And now it's as if they're throwing their weight around again, controlling access to Jesus, acting like gatekeepers about who's in and who's out. I just got to pause here for a moment, but uh, do we have any fans of The Office? Did you watch that series back in the day? Picture Dwight Schrute, kind of self-deputized Dwight Schrute in his, uh, in his uh, you know, sheriff's deputy outfit, 
going after minor offenses and things like that. That's almost how I picture the disciples here, almost in their self-deputized role of deciding who's in and who's out and who should, who is worthy, perhaps, of, of approaching Jesus. But there could be even more to it. It could be that they viewed children as an inconvenience. That is, they were trying to guard their teacher from what they viewed as intrusions upon his time. They thought he was, you know, it was too valuable for children. So inconvenience. Or it could be their insignificance. It could be that they viewed children as an annoyance or a distraction, following the convention of the day and treating them as unimportant or as a waste of time. But even more, it's possible that they viewed children as an impediment to what they thought Jesus needed to be doing. It could be that they wanted to guard their own privileged position and wanted to see Jesus get on with the business of setting up the kingdom. And there's no time to lose on those who had no clout, no political power, who perhaps would be a, was, were viewed as not having sway, right? How would Jesus respond? Let's look at Jesus' elevation of children in verses 14, to 14 and 15. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little, little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus sees what is happening here and reacts emphatically with indignation. That's the word that's used here. It basically means to get angry at something that is unjust or wrong. It's the only time in the Gospels when Jesus is said to be indignant. He is repulsed not only by their attitude toward children, but by their failure to learn from his previous lessons on what it means to welcome children. We might be tempted to think that there are other matters that are more important than the spiritual welfare of children, but this is what causes Jesus to be indignant. Not only does he value children, but he often uses them as, as examples to challenge the grown-ups in the room. Look how Jesus responds to the disciples. First, there is the positive part of the command, let the little children come to me. And then there is the negative flip side to that, do not hinder them. The, in the Greek, this has the effect of almost coming rapid fire. It has a strong staccato-like effect in what he says. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Think about like a, a, a movie premiere or, oh man, I guess these would also be found in like the, the waiting area at an airport, but you know those like, those ropes? Some, well, I guess more of a movie premiere is like the velvet rope. The waiting area of an airport is just more of the whoop, like the zip thing that goes across, right? So anyway, you get the picture here. It's as if they're standing at the velvet rope and Jesus says, drop the rope and stand aside. Drop the rope and stand aside. And the reason is because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Remember, the kingdom of God is not a physical place marked out with geographical boundaries. It is God's reign and his rule that is present in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. That kingdom which has yet to be realized in its full magnificence someday when Jesus comes again. We are moving toward that climax of the eventual full arrival in the new heavens and the new earth. But in using the phrase, such as these, Jesus shows the kind of people to whom God's kingdom belongs. 
little children are a powerful picture. A powerful picture of those whose simple trust demonstrates what faith is all about. The statement also shows how everyone is important to God, even those who, for whatever reason, are often viewed as small or as insignificant. You know, maybe it's by virtue of the books that are in my household, but I can't help but think of that line from Horton, here's a who, right? A person's a person, no matter how small. Virtually no one expected God's kingdom to come by becoming powerless, insignificant children. But those who are powerless can depend on no one but God. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's about those who share the status of a child the insignificant ones who are of the greatest importance to Jesus. Children belong to this wider category, if you will, of such as these, such as these who belong to God. And so to drive his point home, Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Truly, I tell you, that's Jesus' way. I think it happens about 14 times in Mark's gospel. It's like Jesus' way of saying, get out the highlighter. What I'm about to say, you know, write this down. I, for whatever reason, I had this geography, not geography, geology professor back in the day at Bradley who <laughs> almost got, like, scolded us if we didn't write certain things down. And he, was, he would say, you will write this down, like a booming voice. Well, I, I don't picture Jesus using that sort of scolding, but it's like, this is his way of saying, write this down. Truly, I, t I say to you. And what's more is we have the second reference, tightly woven reference to the kingdom of God, drawing our attention to what is really at stake here. The key question for us to consider is, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? I believe the, the point of the comparison has to do with a child's trusting dependent spirit has more to do with that than any inherent uh, qualities or humility that the child might bring. Think, think about this for a moment. I, this, I think about our nine-month-old Silas, for instance, and how, how much he depends upon us for everything. His helplessness, he's had, I don't, do any of you have uh, kids that are trying to kick coughs right now? I mean, this is crazy what's going on. It seems like with with the three kids, they just, it's like this baton pass where they're just going from child to child, and then we're like, we made it, and then we hear, <laughs> I'm like, no, we're starting over. Anyway, but I just picture his, his helplessness, his dependence. The flip side to that is that we didn't have to, we didn't have to teach our children how to be unkind to one another. We didn't teach our children to hit one another or to lie. The picture here, I believe, is, has to do more about their dependent spirit rather than any inherent goodness within the child. And only those who realize they are least before God and can do nothing to earn right standing before him can inherit the gift of the kingdom. I believe that's the point that Jesus is making. And those who do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child with simple, childlike faith, will never enter it. That is a strong negation. That means we'll certainly never enter it. So what happens after Jesus sort of takes 
the disciples to task here? Well, we see his compassion, his living out of what he has just said, his compassion in verse 16. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. What Jesus does here is just as important as as his words, if not more so. He is not inconvenienced by children. He does not treat them as insignificant, and they are certainly not an impediment to the advancement of his kingdom. He shows genuine love for children, great tenderness in the simple act of scooping them into his arms and blessing them through the laying on of hands and praying to the Father. Once again, we must consider what Jesus does here against the backdrop of the calloused attitudes toward children that prevailed at the time. At the end of the day, this entire episode, with its simple, childlike faith, stands in stark contrast to the character that follows immediately after. That is, this rich, young ruler who cannot let go of his great wealth. where I'd be tempted to give a plug for our service happening at 4 o'clock this afternoon, where I'll be preaching on that, but I won't say anything about it, but I just thought of it. Well, this short story serves to illustrate the failure of the disciples, really, and us, if we're honest with ourselves, and us, to see things the way that Jesus does. For Jesus elevates children and holds them up as an example of simple, childlike faith receiving the kingdom of God with simple childlike faith, and then living out the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God. Rather than seeing children as inconvenient, insignificant, or as an impediment, Jesus elevates them to the place of honor. He blesses them. He holds them up as an example to all of us on eagerly receiving God's gracious gift, his completely undeserved gift of the kingdom. Rather than laying claim to it, rather than trying to earn it through our own righteousness, posture we are to have is one of simple, childlike faith, recognizing our total dependence before him. Rather than that of an overseer or even a gatekeeper, somebody trying to keep others from Jesus or driving others away. Instead of our grown-up values, we are to live out the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God, such as showing compassion toward children, adopting an attitude of littleness and bringing people to Jesus. For blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in light of this core truth, I'd love to consider just a couple of questions, some some key questions to really mull over in our minds and also think about the ways that we serve children especially. What What are our attitudes toward children? If we're not careful like the disciples, if we're not careful like the disciples, we can come to view them as an inconvenience, insignificant, or an impediment to our desires. I'm pretty sure I was writing about this part of the message when my son Sam came to me and said, Daddy, can you read this to me? Oh, man. Thankfully, I felt convicted and was able to do that, but uh, I feel like if I had not, that would have been an even more glaring indictment, right, on what this passage is all about. 
Are there ways that we knowingly or unknowingly hinder children from coming to Jesus? What are the grown-up values, the grown-up values, that can get in the way? Where are we tempted to act like gatekeepers today, determining who's in and who's out? If we're honest with ourselves, who or what are we bringing our children to? You know, for, I feel like this is not as common now in COVID days, but there was a time when people would bring their babies to politicians. You know what I'm talking about? Like, for whatever reason, politicians would scoop babies and they'd kiss them, whatever. I don't know if it was meant to show that they were endearing or just like us or whatever the case may be. And every time I think about that, I can't help it. Has anyone seen Hunt for Red October? I know it's a little bit of a dated movie, but... I think it's the Secretary of Defense that says something along the lines of like, listen, I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar. When I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. But that is, I don't know why, for whatever reason, for many years, you know, people would bring their babies to politicians for them to kiss. Now that's kind of a, a sillier example, but the reality is there are other people or even other things that we bring our children to, if we're honest with ourselves. It could be our own expectations that we place upon our children. It could be our desire to see them succeed academically, kind of at the risk of everything else. It could be the myriad, oh man, I don't know if this is the case down here, but certainly in Evanston, like the myriad of extracurricular activities. It's like every club you can think of, right, that families seem to be ferrying their children around to, and don't get me wrong, some of those can be very good things, but sometimes at the expense of child, or at the expense of family discipleship. This passage should challenge all of us, not just parents, to bring children to Jesus. For just at the beginning of that passage, people were involved in, in bringing children to Jesus. So should all of us as a church be part of pointing people to Jesus, bringing them to Jesus. And to aid with that, I brought a few just children's discipleship resources today that you might have seen on that back table when you walked in. You're welcome to peruse them maybe before the family meeting that takes place here later, but uh, my desire with that was just to share some of the ones that have been meaningful to our church and also to our family and maybe uh, give you some ideas as the holidays come closer. Am I allowed to say that at this point? I guess you talked about decorating a Christmas tree or decorating for Christmas, but yeah, there, there's some great resources there. I, I'm, not getting paid, I'm not getting paid to suggest these, but those board book Bibles in particular, I just think about uh, one of them is like uh, getting, um, kind of teaching spiritual truths by using, using motions, and so it gets the child um, to stand and sit and clap, and um, it's amazing how getting the whole body involved can impart some spiritual truths. Often kids get it before we do, right? So anyway, love for you to take a look at those, those particular resources, and I'd be happy to answer any questions about them too. Well, Jesus' indignation in this passage, I think, is also instructive. The things which cause us to be indignant reveal a lot about the kind of people we are. Sometimes when I open Twitter, which I probably should do less and less of these days, I've literally had this thought like, okay, what, what are we angry about today? That's what it seems to be, right? What are we angry about today? 
What Jesus said and did here speaks volumes about the dignity and worth of children who he viewed as just as important and valuable as adults and worthy, equally worthy of love. This is what caused him to become indignant. The spiritual welfare of children. He cares for all people, regardless of age, gender, or class. An important lesson in cultures where children are maybe expected to be seen and not heard. Like Jesus, the mistreatment and marginalization of children should cause us, yes, to express righteous indignation. Well, how do the children highlight the way we are to receive the kingdom? I hinted at this earlier, but just would love to explore that a little bit more. You know, again, we've got Christmas right around the corner here. Kind of pains me to say that, but it's true. But I'm struck by the eagerness of a child to receive and accept a gift that is given. A little child accepts what is given as a gift without asserting their rights, without claiming their worthiness. To enter God's kingdom, one must accept it as exactly that, a gracious gift from God. I'm struck by the use of both receiving and entering the kingdom, the fact that both of those verbs are used. Entering seems to point more toward the eternal destiny that awaits us, while receiving has more to do with our attitude and the response toward God that we have in this life. So those who receive the kingdom of God do so with simplicity and joy as a good gift from God, while embracing the revolutionary values that are wrapped up So third question for us is, how then are we called to show compassion on children? You know, this passage is not meant primarily to weigh in on skirmishes on children's, you know, like infant baptism, although sometimes it gets wielded as a weapon, I guess. I'm assuming, especially being a part of the same family of churches, that you practice uh, child dedication. Is that right? Yeah. Our (laughs) nine-month-old... Maybe we're a little bit behind, but we're like, we should probably get him dedicated one of these days. So we're a little behind the curve on that, but we'll get there. Well, instead, this, a passage like this should help guide the church's attitude toward children, the priority that we place on their, their flourishing. As we remember that Jesus went against the grain and identified with the powerless, like children who are considered insignificant. The church, the new community founded by Christ, is to embrace these powerless little ones because of his special regard for them. Children are committed to the entire church for our love, for our protection, and for training in righteousness. We are called to be on the forefront of caring for all children and supporting parents in this high and holy calling. So passages like this one also, I think, speak volumes to how incredibly important children's ministry is within churches like ours. I got to visit a little bit with Leslie Rico beforehand and hearing about some of the challenges and opportunities that are before you and helping to see children raised up in in the faith. And so if that is a, I would highly encourage you to connect with her, especially if that is a, a burden that God might be placing on your heart to serve little ones, to help their hearts and minds open to these realities in children's ministry. But the reality is that the time in children's ministry pales in comparison 
to the time that families have together. And so supporting families in holistic discipleship is a huge, huge priority. Part of why I wanted to bring those resources and challenge all of us as parents to be the primary disciple makers of our kids. Not just, you know, drop them off and expect them to be raised by children's ministry or Awana or whatever, those are, though those are good. But to recognize that we are the primary disciple, disciple makers of our kids. The statistics bear out the fact that 19 out of 20 Christians come to faith before the age of 25. It is such a vital time in our children's lives. So let us consider and pray about joining a team like, like the one here. Be a part of bringing the little children to Jesus. And yes, even in a month like this where the, the focus or a focus is on adoption, and this being National Adoption Month, I know that God has placed on the hearts of many families in our church, perhaps in yours as well, a burden for adoption and foster care. There's so many opportunities to serve vulnerable children in that way. This is a story that hits uniquely uh, close to home for us. Um, Danielle and I ached, we longed to become parents for so long. And when that wasn't happening, we, we wondered what God was doing. We wondered about uh, just the journey that, that he had for us. God began growing our heart for adoption when we even didn't realize it. And we ended up connecting with another couple that had walked that journey and were able to show us the ropes. Came to discover that one in eight couples these days struggle with some form of infertility. And if that's, if that's you or someone you know, I would love to connect with you. We've, Danielle and I have walked with many couples that have experienced just that. But yeah, God began growing our heart. It's a long story. I'll try to boil it down, but... Um, we got connected to a great adoption agency out in Colorado and entered the waiting period. Oh, what we, <clears throat> what we discovered, though, is that God does not wait for waiting. He often uses that time to mold us, to fashion us. Though we may not realize what he is doing at the time, God does not waste waiting. And he brought our daughter, Isabella, into our lives. Um, it was a crazy, crazy weekend when we got the profile notification, agreed for our book to be shown, the birth mother chose us, met with us. This is from Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then Sunday, I think it was, uh, she said yes to us. She chose us. And we were driving home at that point and got to pull off the highway when our caseworker mentioned that she was, uh, Isabella was just two weeks old at that point. Um, staying with a cradle care family, they're like, do you want to meet her? Absolutely. So we pulled off and, uh, and drove to that family's home and met my daughter on Father's Day. On Father's Day of 2017, of all days. And then she, came, she was placed with us the next day. Talk about a whirlwind of a weekend. What we didn't realize, though, was that some dear friends of ours had given us a crib that was in pieces, needed to be put together. We kind of we erred on the side of like not having everything together and putting together the perfect nursery so that every time we passed that room, we wouldn't be reminded of the, the pain that was associated with that. But 
it meant that we had a lot of work to do <laughs> in a very short amount of time. So anyway, but some friends of ours had given us this crib. It was in our home, in our, yeah, in our home for about a year and a half. And so we brought it in. I remember helping to put it together. And I think it was Danielle's sister, Ashley, who's eyes, whose eyes lit up when she saw the name of the model of that crib. It was called the Isabella. Her name had been in our home for a year and a half. We didn't even realize it. God had orchestrated that so much so that then a few months later, several months later, we got the call that birth mom was pregnant again with a little boy. And if we would be interested and willing to adopt him, we said, yes, of course. And so Sam came into our lives by way of adoption as well. They're Irish twins, less than a year apart. And uh, Danielle actually got to be in the delivery room as Sam was born, to be the support person for birth mom there. And so, man, it's, that's just maybe a, a tip of the iceberg when it comes to that story, but God writes amazing stories. I should say, though, that as, as it comes to adoption, that um, results may vary. <laughs> like, some friends of ours have said, have called us the adoption unicorn, particularly with the, you know, the two siblings. They both have the same birth mom and birth dad. And so that's kind of unique, a unique part of their story, but they share a very significant bond. Um, but yeah, if, if adoption is something that you've been wrestling with or thinking about, I'd love to connect with you on that as well or help point you in the direction of good resources. But you might have uh, heard at the beginning that I introduced three children. And so the joy of all joys was them getting pregnant um, shortly after moving here. And I don't know, we, we weren't like, we didn't start back up the, you know, we're an open book, by the way, so I'm just telling you this, but uh, we, we didn't uh, even, we were just starting to think about walking down kind of the fertility treatment path when it just happened. Um, I don't know how or, or why, other than that, uh, according to my father-in-law, it just took some good Lake Michigan water, but uh, I don't know about that necessarily. But the joy of all joys, welcoming Silas into our lives. And so here we are. Here we are. God may be cultivating in you that same passion, that same desire to serve vulnerable children, either through adoption, through the foster system. There's such a huge need here in the Chicagoland area for both of, of those as well. John 1.12 I realize it's on the wall right here. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. At the very heart of the gospel is the reality that those who receive Jesus are adopted into his family, become God's children with full rights and privileges that are theirs, secured by the cross. Galatians 4 explains that God sent his son to redeem us so that we would receive adoption to sonship. And because we are his sons and daughters, we can approach him with full confidence, crying out, Abba, Father. You know, in, I don't know if it was in this pandemic or maybe it was beforehand, but remember that viral video of, the, I think it was a BBC correspondent on the, on the video and his daughter strolls into the room while he's on a while he's on that call. Do you remember that? 
you'll have to look it up if you haven't, but she just strolls on in like she owns the place. I love that. That is what we have as adopted sons and daughters of the king. We can stroll on in like we own the place and cry out, Abba, Father. So perhaps today the Spirit of God is prompting your heart to receive Jesus. Mark 10, 13 through 16 shows us that we come empty-handed with simple, childlike faith to receive the good gift that he gives, the good gift of his kingdom, all through his grace. As we are fond, often fond of singing, nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful picture that you give us in the gospel, according to Mark, of simple childlike faith. Father, would you challenge us? Would you motivate us? Would you also show us how we might live this out to your glory? Not only in the ways that we welcome children ourselves, but Lord, for those of us that might be struggling with what to do with this kingdom of yours in the first place. Those that may be wrestling with the claims of Christ. Lord, would you call them to yourself through simple childlike faith and receive the gracious gift through your son's death and victorious resurrection. Father, would you show us, too, the ways that we can have compassion upon children and bring them ultimately to you, not to us, not to our desires, not to other things, but to you. And so, Lord, would you strengthen parents in this room? Would you strengthen all of us as a church to be a part, to be a part of this high and holy calling of bringing children to you? We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious and matchless name.